1: Radio presents. In 1993, director Chris Columbus and star Robin Williams bent the rules of comedy to critique the culture of American marriage in the 1990s. In 2020, we continue our journey through the springtime of
0: swill with the third in a line of bottom shelf bourbons.
1: The film is Mrs.
0: Doubtfire. The whiskey is Very Old Barton, 90 proof, and we'll review them both.
1: This is the The Film Film and Whiskey Whiskey Podcast. Podcast.
0: Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1993 comedy Mrs. Doubtfire. Miss Hillen? The water's boiling. Hello! Ah! Oh, I'm sorry to frighten you, dear.
1: I must look like a yeti in this getup.
0: Brad, we are in the middle of a series that we're calling the Springtime of Swill. We are working our way through, I think, 10 separate bottom shelf whiskeys on our whiskey reviews. Wait a second. You did not tell me that this was going on for 10 weeks, Bob. Yeah, we're going to do it just all the way till the end of the season, which I think uh, is is the beginning of June. So I think we're smack dab in the middle of 10 bottom shelf whiskeys.
1: Well, it seems like this would be the right time then to bring in probably one of our favorite actors of all time. None other than Robin Williams, Bob, it feels like we need a name for this because we're doing four Robin Williams films in a row.
0: I know I couldn't come up with anything clever, but I thought that, you know, uh, someone had asked me at one point if we were going to do Mrs. Doubtfire, and I was like, you know, that would be such a fun movie to do. And then I started thinking about the fact that, you know, it's been since 2014 that the world has been without Robin Williams. And I thought it was time for us to maybe do a little series on one of our favorite actors, Brad, I got to tell you, it was really hard to pick the four movies to go into this set that we're doing here. And I had to kind of pull out some ulterior motives because we're going to be looking at his 1990 film Awakenings. And that is one of my all time favorite Robin Williams movies. And I feel like no one has seen it. And so in order to like smuggle it into our podcast, I said, maybe I should like wrap it inside three other Robin Williams films, like a Trojan horse of Robin Williams. (laughs) So yeah, we, we're going to do Mrs. Doubtfire, we're going to do Aladdin, we're going to do Awakenings here in a couple weeks, and we're going to do Goodwill Hunting, the movie for which he won his Academy Award. It's not your fault, Bob. <laughs> it's not your fault, Brad.
1: <laughs> Man, yeah, I am I'm crazy excited. I mean, Robin Williams was an icon of our generation. Like, you know, both of us being born in 1990, his film career obviously started before the 90s, but it really feels like he kind of came into his own in the 90s. He, he really hit the big time on the silver screen and not just on television. I mean, I will say I remember watching Mork and Mindy growing up like Robin Williams is indelibly marked on my childhood. And so I'm just so excited to get into some of his filmography here.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, like, you know, we're going to be leaving out movies like Dead Poet Society, which I hope to get to at some point in this podcast. But I think what we have here, especially in Mrs. Doubtfire, is maybe the performance that he is going to be best remembered for. You know, we look at the genie in Aladdin and, you know, that's an animated performance. But if you want to see Robin Williams in all his glory, I think the first place I might point somebody would be Mrs. Doubtfire.
1: As far as Mrs. Doubtfire goes, this is a movie that, you know, Bob, you haven't asked me yet. I actually have seen parts of it before. Haven't seen the whole thing, but I've seen enough of it to know the gist of what's happening. You know, there's there's all sorts of stuff going on. But I would agree with you, Bob. This might be his most iconic role outside of the genie in Aladdin. Absolutely. And Brad, I'm not
0: surprised to hear you say that, because I think that this is one of those movies that has been just kind of in syndication and circulating around cable TV for years and years and years. I feel like this was always on some channel, you know, throughout my childhood. And I honestly can't remember, the, you know, if the first time I saw this was actually sitting down to watch it like on a VHS tape or if I just caught it in bits and pieces the way you did, Brad. So this would be the first time then, if I'm understanding you correctly, that you watched this movie front to back.
1: Yeah, it it actually is the very first time, and I'm really excited to get into America's favorite segment, Brad Explains. <laughs> not, not just our
0: favorite segment, America's favorite segment. If you're, if you're new to the podcast, Brad Explains is pretty self-explanatory. It's where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, oftentimes for the first time. And I think this qualifies since Brad had never seen it in one sitting. So, Brad, would you walk our listeners through the plot of the movie
1: Mrs. Doubtfire? So, the movie Mrs. Doubtfire, uh, it's about a married couple named Daniel and I can't think of Sally Field's name right now. I think it's Miranda. Miranda. Yeah, it is Miranda. Good job, Bob. Thanks, man. So uh, Daniel and Miranda are married and then they're not because Daniel is very irresponsible and he acts like a child and he's a comedian. Um, well, kind of a comedian. He he does line readings for animated shows and he gets fired from his job and all sorts of you know stuff goes on. And in the end, Miranda and Daniel just fight all the time. And so she tells him that they're going to get a divorce. He gets kicked out. And in the proceedings in the courts, they decide that Daniel can have one day a week on Saturdays with his kids. And he, at the very least, he might not be the best husband, but he absolutely adores his children. And so he you know, argues pretty vehemently against this. But after a few visits with his kids, he finds out that Miranda is hiring a nanny to stay with the kids in the afternoons from like 4 to 7 p.m. while she's at work. So needless to say, Daniel switches up the phone number that you're supposed to call on the newspaper ad. And so he finally calls in with this soft female accent, and he presents himself as Mrs. Doubtfire, and he gets the job and is the most loving, caring, kindly, harsh like strong backbone, older English woman that uh, comes in and and unites the family and makes them all better people. And through all of that, he slowly earns the trust of his family back. And by the end of the movie, obviously, he he's found out after a while. Um, But they leave it off that, you know, Daniel Miranda don't get back together. But they seem to be in a good place where they they have a more even footing in how they're going to care for their kids and move forward in their lives.
0: I think that's a great explanation. Thank you for Brad Explains. So I want to get into talking about Robin Williams because you, you can't go anywhere in this film without talking about him. He is in, I believe, every scene, but maybe two that they kind of cut away to Sally Field's character. But he owns this movie. And Brad, I just want to get your initial impressions of Robin Williams' performance in this film.
1: I mean, meh. He He's like, just OK, Bob, come on. This is Robin Williams at the peak of his powers like he is able to command the camera in every single instant of this film. And like you said, this film is very uh, first person oriented. It's not filmed from his point of view, you know, like from his eyeballs, but it's kind of filmed from his perspective in almost every single scene of the movie. You see what he sees. You learn information as he learns information And his reactions are so genuine and so honest. I I think the most beautiful thing about Robin Williams isn't necessarily his comedy. It's his ability to take any situation and treat it honestly. I, I think that's what I love most about him as an actor. And you see that just full throttle in this film. I think it's really interesting that you say
0: that, Brad. I remember there was... I don't remember what film it was that we were talking about, but you kept using the word sincere to describe the actor that we were talking about that day. And I always kind of wondered why you said sincere and not like, you know, authentic or earnest or any of those other words. And I'm watching Robin Williams in this movie, and the the first word that came to mind was sincere. I just think that Robin Williams is so authentic In the way that he acts, he's not necessarily the world's best actor. Like he's not a Daniel Day Lewis that can disappear into somebody else in such a way that like no one else can do it. He's always playing Robin Williams in every role that he's in. But the thing that I love about it is that he plays it so vulnerable. Like you can when you're looking in his eyes in that first scene where Sally Field tells him that she wants a divorce, you're looking right into his soul.
1: Let's take a vacation together with the kids as a family. Get you away from work. You're a different person. You really are. You're great. Oh, Daniel, our problems would be waiting for us right here when we got back. We'll move. And hopefully our problems won't follow us. Daniel, please don't joke. Okay. We've just
0: grown apart. We're different. We have nothing in common.
1: Oh, sure we do. We love each other. Come on, man. We love each other. Don't we? I want a
0: divorce. And I feel like there are very few actors who have that ability that even though you know the whole time that you're watching Robin Williams and not somebody else... It, it plays completely authentically because the emotions that he's able to tap into just read so authentically.
1: Yeah. There's something about Robin Williams that you don't ever doubt that who he is on the screen is who he is in real life. You know what I mean? And that's not to say that he's angry and yells at his wife or his spouse or whatever, but like if the real Robin Williams ever got angry enough to yell at somebody I have no doubt that who we saw in Mrs. Doubtfire is exactly who we would see see in real life. It doesn't feel like Robin Williams is ever acting. It just feels like he is being his authentic self at all times. And I think that's why he sells himself so well. I think it's why his charisma just oozes through the screen and, and grabs attention no matter the film or show that he is acting in. So I've been listening to this podcast lately called The Office
0: Ladies and it's uh, Jenna Fisher and uh, Angela from The Office and they're going through each Angela Kinsey Kinsey. Thank you. And they're going through each episode of the show one by one. And they were talking about Steve Carell in one of the episodes and just talking about how he's the best fake laugher they've ever seen, because when he laughs it, it really comes across like something that has been said to him is the most hilarious thing they've ever heard. And As I'm watching this movie, I'm thinking to myself, the only other person I've ever seen who plays emotions this authentically is Steve Carell. And I don't like I'm not advocating for a remake or anything like that, but it's so rare to see a person that taps into their own kind of experience and soul in the way that those two guys do. It's very different from what you get with sort of classically trained actors. And I think it really, really helps Robin Williams performance
1: in this movie. So what you're saying is you want to remake with Steve Carell as uh, Mrs. Doubtfire.
0: If they did remake it, I think he's the only person that I would approve of in this role. All right. So, Brad, I want to talk about the director of this film, Chris Columbus. This is actually the third Chris Columbus movie that we've done, not just on this podcast, but this season. And if you had told me at any point that we would be doing three Chris Columbus movies, I would have been kind of surprised by that. It's not like he is you know, listed among the great American directors or anything. So it's it's really funny.
1: He's no Scorsese.
0: Well, given given your track record with Scorsese, I don't know about all that.
1: I was going to say, I actually might like Chris Columbus more as a director than Scorsese. So all right, who well, knows?
0: That's, that's the ultimate hot take.
1: <laughs> all right,
0: Brad. So what did you think of Chris Columbus's direction in this film? I, I really don't know. I don't really know if you can see a lot of like a directorial trademark in this movie. It just seems like Chris Columbus did kind of like a serviceable job. And I think, you know, he, he leans into the sentimentality a ton. I think that's what he's famous for. You know, he's kind of coming off of the Home Alone success when he makes this movie. And in a lot of ways, this movie, it leans into exactly what Home Alone leans into. And I think sometimes this movie does it in a way that's. The sentiment in this movie sometimes comes across as a little bit like manipulative to me. I don't know if you got the same vibe as as I did, but I I'm kind of dying to hear what you thought about Chris Columbus here. Honestly, I
1: I don't feel like Chris Columbus had the best direction in this movie. Like have you seen have you seen Marriage Story? Yeah. It kind of feels like Chris Columbus wasn't sure if he wanted to film home alone or marriage story. And he just kind of mashed them together and was like, hey, we're gonna have these this couple that like fights a lot and it's really brutal and really honest and really raw. But we're also gonna have, you know, Robin Williams dropping his false mask out into the street and shove his face into a meringue pie and Put on a bodysuit with a little fat pooch going on in the front. Like, there's just a lot of stuff going on, and I'm not sure. It just feels like he's moving in two directions yeah. all the time and he's never quite sure he's never quite sure which one to stick with.
0: Yeah, I totally agree, Brad. And it's not just that this movie is trying to balance comedy and drama, it's trying to balance what we call broad comedy. You know, it's it's your Adam Sandler movies or your Will Ferrell movies. The kind of comedy that's happening here isn't based around kind of witty, you know, exchanges. It's based around physical humor. It's based around Robin Williams fake breasts catching on fire. And they're trying to balance that with this divorce drama that I actually think works really, really well. The drama portions of the movie, I I, I found myself very emotionally affected by that. But I think that sometimes the movie bounces back and forth between these two extremes and it does it in a way that doesn't really feel natural, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a few scenes where you kind of cut so quickly from the angstiness that's going on to, like you said, the physical comedy that Robin Williams is engaging in and you just kind of wonder like man where where's the direction in this film and, and and it's not that any of it is done poorly like I would genuinely say this is one of the funnier comedies I've ever seen and it's also one of the more touching dramas I've ever seen but when you slap them so close to one another. I really struggle with with loving the fact that they're so close together.
0: Yeah, Brad. And you brought up the movie Marriage Story. And I actually think that Marriage Story kind of owes a debt of gratitude to Mrs. Doubtfire because what this movie does well and what a lot of movies at this time weren't doing was portraying divorce between two kind of mature adults as a real viable option. Like you said, at the end of the film they don't get back together and it's presented as okay and that they can still have a healthy family dynamic. And I I found myself very emotionally affected by that. And that's, you know, not to spoil recent movies or anything, but that's the ending of marriage story as well. These two people kind of come to the realization that they can continue to have this mature relationship. But what gets me, Brad, just like you said, it's a really funny comedy. And it's a really touching drama. And yet the whole is less than the sum of its parts somehow. Like adding those two things together doesn't add up to a great movie necessarily.
1: Well, I, th- I think a big part of it is the fact that comedy has really evolved over the past 20 years. And I think that the last, like, major slapstick physical comedy type of movie that really succeeded was The Hangover in 2009. And so since 2009, you haven't really seen any pure comedies do super well at the box office. And I think it's because other genres of film have kind of subsumed comedy into their own genre And they give you small, witty, comedic elements to their films, but it's still an action Marvel movie, or it's still a drama, or it's still a horror film, but it has bits and pieces of comedy in it that make you laugh. And so I think that the American consumer has grown to want more from their comedies. And so honestly, I feel like Mrs. Doubtfire is a very early version of that, But they didn't really know how to integrate the two types of movie that they were shooting for.
0: Yeah. And and I don't really know if if I agree that it's because it was so early on in that process. I think a lot of it does come back to falling on Chris Columbus as a director. I think in the hands of a better filmmaker, the, the balance of those two things would work a lot better. And I think that there are just some filmmaking decisions. You know, we talked about this with John Hughes a little bit, where he makes these filmmaking decisions that completely pull you out of the world the film is trying to build. And I think for me, I didn't even mind that long bit where you got Robin Williams doing all those impressions for the lady, like the court mandated visitation lady.
1: What do you mean you do voices? Ben? Well, I do voices. Yes! We've come to this planet looking for intelligent life. Oops, we made a mistake. We're oh, happy to be in America. Don't ask for a green card.
0: <laughs> I want you in the worst way.
1: Well, this is certainly a rough meeting, and it's not going very well for me, I'll tell you that. Hey, boss, give it a change. She's going to loosen up any moment. <laughs> Look at me right now, money penny. I want to undo that bow and get to know you. I'm crazy to make a deal with you! Nancy and I are still looking for the other half of my head. Yes! <laughs> yes! <It's idiot. laughs> Mine.
0: Don't make me smack you, sweetheart. I'll do it. I do a great impression
1: of a hot dog. Hey. Mr. Hillard, do you consider yourself humorous? I used to. There was a time when I found myself funny, but today you have proven me wrong.
0: Thank you. I thought that was hilarious, but the part that really got me was when he goes to his brother's house for his makeover, and they're trying out, like, eight different looks, and there's one specific look where they dress him up like Barbara Streisand, and he spins around in the chair, <laughs> and he breaks the fourth wall, and he sings a song to the camera, but it's like, I hate that you made that decision, Chris Columbus, like, I hate that you are actually... Pandering to us in such a way that you're going to have Robin Williams look at the audience to sing this throwaway jokey line like it completely pulled me out of the world this movie was trying to build. And I think it's a really cheap trick when directors do stuff like that, because then it introduces like, you know, it introduces so many questions into the internal logic of the movie that just
1: don't belong. I mean, they did that in The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and you still give it a 10 <laughs> out of 10. They did, so. and I, I
0: will always say that you that know. was a stupid directorial decision.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, Bob, I, I would agree with you. There, there's a lot of things that Chris Columbus does in this movie that I I don't know what it is. I think Chris Columbus is an above average director that somehow stumbled onto like two or three of the best scripts. And just turned in some of our favorite movies of the 90s. You know what I mean? Like, when you look back, Home Alone and Mrs. Doubtfire, like, those are iconic 90s movies. But the first one, I think, was made by its amazing script. And the second one was made because Robin Williams was in his element.
0: Yeah, and I completely agree with you, Brad. I think Robin Williams is shining in spite of a lot of things working against him. Like, we already talked about... The movie goes back and forth with such a whiplash that it shouldn't work. And the only reason that it kind of works is because he's so committed to this part. And I think the same thing can be said about, like, all the sentimentality. Like, there were a couple moments in the movie where Howard Shore's score comes in. And I love Howard Shore. You know, the guy did Lord of the Rings. But I was like, wow, this is a really, really tacky and cheesy and over-the-top sentimental score. And it felt like Chris Columbus was just trying to force us to feel things. And in the hands of any lesser actor, that wouldn't work. But because Robin Williams is so authentic and so earnest, it still somehow worked. I really feel like he he not only saves this movie, but he is this movie.
1: But I will say I, I did enjoy some of the other performances in this movie. So, Bob, I kind of wanted to pick your brain a little bit about how you felt about some of the supporting roles in this film, such as Sally Field. Well, Sally
0: Field is is a really great actress, and I think that as I watched this movie, I couldn't decide if this was just one of those times where an actress gets the wrong director who doesn't know how to direct her, or if it was just kind of a badly written part, because I think I had both feelings at different points in this movie. in In the really early scenes where she's confronting... Uh, Robin Williams character and, and saying that she wants a divorce, it just didn't come across like very authentically. And this is the same woman who played Forrest Gump's mom a year later and knocked it out of the park. And I was like, man, this just doesn't seem to be going well for her right now. And the more the movie went on, I think it was this combination of not having a director that knew how to get a good performance out of her, but also... The more the movie went on, the more I realized that they were never really going to just consider her point of view either. This is a movie that's really, really centered on Robin Williams' character to the point where, like, all of the change that has to happen really happens in her. Like, he changes a little bit. He learns how to clean up his life a little bit. But she's the one that ultimately apologizes. She's the one that ultimately says you can visit the kids more. And I feel like in real life... She'd be the person that I'd be siding with because her husband was stalking their family in disguise as a woman. But because the movie's told from Robin Williams perspective, I don't feel like they give her a lot of they don't give her point of
1: view, a lot of credence. I don't know. How did you feel about it, Brad? Well, there's a lot of times in the movie where Robin Williams will say something absolutely ridiculous, oftentimes as Mrs. Doubtfire to Sally Field. And she just kind of lets it happen. Like, like this woman is asking her about her sex life and commenting on her looking like a whore. And there's so many points where I go, this script does not feel real in any way. Like, I don't care how much you like your housekeeper or, you know, your nanny. If she started speaking to almost any woman like that, I don't think it would go over very well. And,
0: and that's like one of the notes I took was, how would you feel if your ex-husband stalked and infiltrated your family? And then at the end of the movie, you had your own kids tell you to your face while you're trying to pull together a normal life that they preferred having her around. And then she's the one that's expected to apologize for it. She loses out on Pierce Brosnan, who is you know we're going to talk about his performance as well because her ex husband f's her over so many times, and she's trying to get this semblance of normalcy back to her family. And the movie doesn't allow that to happen without her being the one that has to cave in and give into like what Robin Williams' character, quote unquote,
1: deserves. And I will say, I think that in the hands of a lesser actress. Miranda could have come across as the bad guy in this movie. I think I think that Sally Fields does a phenomenal job of being almost kind of an innocent character. She's very easily surprised. She's very likable. She's such a great actress at helping you care for her as a character that I think you can overlook some of the deficiencies in the script because of her acting performance but still, like you said, you're just you're so strongly entrenched in that first person view from Daniel that you never really get to see how the kids fully feel about things, how Pierce Brosnan feels about things, how Sally Field feels about things. It, it really creates a one sided movie that in the end, like it's still funny. It's still a good movie. But I, I wish we could have had a little more depth to the other characters. You know, on our podcast, Brad, it, it seems like we
0: spend the first half of the episode usually talking about the performances and maybe some of the director's choices. And then the second half, we get into breaking down, you know, issues with the script and, and kind of picking the movie apart. But I think this movie, all of our, our thoughts are our, even our complaints about the movie are all tied together so much because the characters, you know, the actors are playing characters that are sometimes poorly conceived and sometimes poorly directed and. And so I know we haven't gotten around to like Pierce Brosnan or a couple of the other side characters, but I think maybe this is the best time for us to hit pause and try our whiskey for the week so that when we come back, we can jump right back into talking about some of the issues that this movie has with developing fully formed characters. So what do you say we get into drinking this very old Barton 90
1: proof? I am so excited for our very old swill 90 proof.
0: So today we are checking out very old Barton 90 proof. Now, Brad, we are in the middle of our springtime of swill, as we've talked about. And this is the third in the very old Barton line that we've tried. Typically on our show, we like to feature whiskeys that you can get at any store in America. And very old Barton tends to be exclusive to Kentucky. But because we have invested so much in this very old Barton line, we're trying to work our way through. So today we're doing the 90. Later on this season, we're going to finish it out with the 100 proof. What are your thoughts so far on the very old Barton line, Brad? You
1: know, Bob, I, I've been intrigued by them. They're they're not that bad. They're not that good. I, I like the name. It's a cool name. Uh, but overall, it's a decent whiskey line. I am excited to move up four points from the 86 to the 90. And I'm honestly even more excited to get to that bottled and bond proof of 100. Well, we'll get there, Brad. But
0: today, we're going to check out this 90 proof. We both have it poured out here in front of us. This definitely qualifies for the springtime of Swill. We're trying to hit about that $15 mark or less, and uh, I'll reveal the price later, but let's just say Very Old Barton is comfortably in that range. So, Brad, what are you picking up on the nose of this whiskey?
1: Honestly, I've been I've been kind of sniffing it throughout the episode so far. I'm not getting a ton on my nose, a, a little bit of caramel, like just hints of it. Um the ethanol isn't overpowering, you know, it's not super high proof, but you can definitely smell it. I honestly it's not an impressive whiskey so far.
0: So today I thought that I would change up the glassware that I typically use. Um you know, most of the time I use these kind of cool angled glasses that, that kind of look like a Glen Cairn but they're more I don't know, pointy. And today I thought that I would just try a rocks glass and I dumped this into a rocks glass and All I could pick up on it was ethanol. It was really harsh. So I went back to using my standard glass and what I'm getting here, it's definitely darker than the 86. It has a lot more character, like just on the nose. It smells like it's, it has, it's been aged longer. Maybe it says that it's six years uh, in age on the bottle here, but um, I'm not getting a ton either, Brad. I got a lot of spice, a lot of maybe some pepper, like black pepper kind of notes, And then I got a lot of vanilla extract, like not just vanilla scent, but if you open up like your spice rack and take the vanilla extract out, it smells like concentrated alcoholic vanilla to me. I actually really like it, though. I think it's really sweet. It smells better than the 86 did. And knowing that we're in the springtime of swill, I think I'm going to give this a seven on the nose.
1: Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and give it a five and a half. I'm not getting enough on here to be impressed. Um, but you know, let's just get into the taste and see where it takes us. Okay. Yeah, that's not bad.
0: Um, I don't get a lot of sweetness on this. It definitely has a lot more alcohol content to it or alcohol flavor to it than the 86 did. It doesn't give me quite the Kentucky hug that the 86 did, but I definitely feel that alcohol burn in my mouth throughout the whole process. It's kind of thin. It's not super sweet. And it has a kind of a more oaky flavor. Like it tastes more like on the bittery wood side than it does on the kind of sweet caramel vanilla side to
1: me. You know what, though, Bob? Like that's actually not that bad hmm. for a swill whiskey. I, like if this is your bottom shelf whiskey, I, the flavor's OK. That oakiness is kind of nice. That little hint of vanilla kind of. Uh, sweetens the palate a little bit. I'm going to give it a seven on taste. It, it's not great, but it, but it's solid. Yeah, I'm going to give it a six on taste. I'm right there with you, Brad.
0: This is not bad whiskey by any means. And even the description of the nose or or the taste, I don't mean anything bad by that. I just don't think that it's as sweet as I would like it to be. Uh, and that takes us into the finish. The finish on this is really short, like really short. Uh, it's very mouthwatering. It doesn't have a drying effect, but it also isn't very distinctive. The only thing that I'm really getting is as I kind of breathe out afterwards, I can kind of taste and smell a bit of smoke on it that I wasn't expecting. And I really like that. Um, I I do like smokier bourbons, and that's not something that I really tend to expect in a bourbon that costs $15 or less. So I like the finish probably more than I like the taste, to be honest with you. And I'm going to give the finish a six and a half.
1: Yeah, I'm going to move back to the five and a half. Uh, I think the finish is okay. It is, like you said, very thin. I'm not picking up on that smoke that you're talking about, though. Um, And I wish I was because I I love a good smoky whiskey. Um, Five and a half for me. Just decent.
0: All right. So that takes us into our fourth category, overall balance. That's where we look at nose, taste and finish all put together. And we try to determine if anything kind of stuck out from the pack for good or for bad. Or did they all kind of marry together and make a nice, pleasant experience all the way through? You know, Brad, this is not a bad whiskey, and that's kind of the best thing I can say about it. And really, what I don't really know what more we could expect from a sub-$15 whiskey. So it's it's fairly well balanced, but it's just not great. So I'm going to give it a six on the balance.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of right there with you. I'm just going to stick right in the middle. It's five. It's okay. It's decently balanced. Um, nothing moved from the nose to the palate to the finish that surprised me, uh, but nothing uh, you know impressed me either. So I'll just give it a five. Um, and then I, I'm really curious to hear this price point, Bob, because I'm 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 itching to get to that value score. So
0: the last time I was in Kentucky, I tried to pick up the whole line of very old Barton, and the only size that they had for the ninety proof was a liter. So I'm using a liter bottle here, and this liter cost me. $15.99. So if we do the math and we kind of figure, you know, a fifth is three quarters of that, we're talking about 12 to 12 50 for a fifth of this whiskey. And Brad, I'm kind of in a weird spot with giving this a score because I think that the 80 proof at $10 was a phenomenal value. And this 90 proof at $12, it seems like it should be an even better value, but somehow I think I was expecting a little more out of this whiskey. And so I feel like I would almost give the 80 proof at 10 a higher value score than this one at 12. Does that make sense?
1: No, it totally does. I, I think when you are when you're looking at everything up to $15, I think it's okay to discriminate between, you know, a two to three dollar difference and say, hey, like that lowers your value score a decent amount. If this cost you $9.99. You might give it a higher value score, but when you're at 12, 13 bucks, you're, you're kind of going to go, yeah, not my favorite. I think I'll pass this time. I'll just get the uh, 80 proof for a few bucks less and call it a day.
0: Well, and that's the thing. I think for another $2, you could get a, a different 90 proof whiskey, which would be Heaven Hill Green Label. And I prefer Heaven Hill Green Label to this. It's it's kind of the same consistency. Heaven Hill's still a little bit thin, but it's a lot sweeter, and I feel like it's a lot more well-rounded of a flavor. But at the same time, Brad, I mean, we're we're doing the springtime of swill here for $12. Can you really get a better 90 proof six year whiskey? I don't know. So, you know what? I think I'm going to give it an eight on value. It's still a good value because you really
1: just can't get whiskey for much cheaper than this. Yeah, I'm going to give it a six on value. I, I think it's decent. But like you said, there's other whiskeys out there for this price that I do think are better. And so especially like you look at that Heaven Hill green label, and I'd put that quite a bit higher than this. uh, So I'm just going to stick it a six. Um, It doesn't mean that it's a bad value, but it's not necessarily my top value. You know what? You're right. I'm
0: going to I'm going to adjust my score, too. I'm going to go down to a seven on value. I just don't know how often I would pick this up off the shelf, even at the price point that it's at. And so that's going to bring me out to a 32.5 out of 50. Brad, what's that bringing you out to? I'm at a 29 out of 50, Bob. So that's bringing us out to a 61.5 out of 100, or on our 50-point scale, a 30.75. So this is kind of right at that, you know, 60% mark, almost to the two-thirds mark. I think that's probably a fair place to put it. I think this is above average for what you would get at this price point. It's just not a great whiskey.
1: Yeah, it's decent. Like, this is something I would use as a mixer. You know, honestly, the other day, Haley and I made some bourbon-infused whipped cream, threw it on some coffee, put a shot of bourbon in there, and we used Heaven Hill Green Label for that, and it was delicious. I could see myself using this for that as well. So it's a solid whiskey. It's just not overwhelmingly good. Would you recommend? I I would recommend. Yeah, I would recommend as well. Yeah. I mean, as long as you're not
0: buying this as like your only bottle of whiskey and the only thing you have to rely on it's a solid addition to your shelf of whiskey especially your bottom shelf of whiskey but it's not really anything more than that either
1: yeah and honestly i think it kind of pairs well with the movie that we're watching it, it's a solid movie there's just some issues here or there and, and that's okay but bob what do you say we get back into mrs doubtfire let's do it brad
0: All right, so that was very old Barton 90 proof, a whiskey that we both recommend. Uh, And we're getting back into talking about Mrs. Doubtfire, which I have a feeling is a movie that we would also recommend, but that we probably both feel the same amount of like eh, towards. This is a good movie, Brad. And I just I'm really surprised by the list of complaints that I have because I don't want to sound like I'm just nitpicking. But I do think that this is this is a very flawed movie that just happens to feature one of the most inspired performances ever committed to film.
1: Yeah, I I feel like you get Robin Williams at his peak here, and he really drags the film, you know, up into the upper echelon of like people's favorite movies from the nineties. But man oh man, outside of that, the movie's a little bit rough. And, and that's okay. That's fine. I, I think it suffers from a, a rough script. I think you pointed out that the music It just doesn't always hit the right notes for me. Um, But overall, this movie, I just don't know what to do with it, Bob. (laughs) I'm really flabbergasted. Yeah. And I think one of the areas where this really comes
0: to a head is with Pierce Brosnan's character. And first of all, you know, I I told Brad this. I texted Brad as we were watching this movie in our own separate homes. Pierce Brosnan in this film is an incredibly attractive man. I mean, he's
1: he's beautiful
0: he went on to become james bond but this is this is a pre bond pierce brosnan and and you know i'm i'm not sally field but if given the choice between pierce brosnan's incredibly successful character and robin williams' you know stalker i think i choose pierce brosnan 10 times out of
1: 10 yeah 100% the dude man the scene that confused me the most in this movie is when they're out swimming and pierce brosnan goes to get you know some iced tea for sally field and her kids And his buddy at the bar is like, hey, Pierce, are you banging that chick? You know, I didn't think you hung out with girls who had kids. And Pierce Brosnan, for half a second, you feel like he's going to be the bad guy who's like, oh, yeah, I'm just waiting until I can get rid of him and we'll throw him off with her stupid husband and I'll take her off to Aruba or something like like it feels like that's where it's going. But Pierce Brosnan has this really weird like set of lines where he acts intimidating, but he says really loving lines. And and I don't know what to do with that scene. He's like, uh, yes, most women would only draw my attraction if they didn't have any children. But by gosh, I love these kids. They're the best things ever. Look at that girl. She's so cute. And I've got to like, why are you like being intimidating, but loving at the same time? I, I was, I didn't know what to do with it, Bob. Well, and again, I think this is, like
0: I said, that's where the, every problem with this movie comes to a head because Pierce Brosnan is trying his darndest to make a fully formed character out of something that is really confused on the page. They They try to manufacture a villain. Out of a guy that ends up being a genuinely good guy and who would honestly be a better father to these kids in terms of providing a stable future than Robin Williams would. He seems to really care about Sally Field. He seems to really love these kids. He obviously can provide, you know, alongside Sally Field. And the way the movie kind of dispatches him at the end, Robin Williams basically tries to kill him. And you assume that at that point, once he finds out that her ex-husband is in drag stalking them, that he breaks up with her. And yet we're supposed to root for Robin Williams in this scenario where, you know, Robin Williams tries to prevent Sally Field from dressing provocatively for him, for even going out on a date with him, obviously for, you know, consummating anything with him. And – we laugh alongside that. But at the end of the day, like they are adults who are divorcing and she has her own free will. She can make her own decisions. And it's not as if she's cheating on him. I don't understand exactly why we're supposed to think of Pierce Brosnan as the enemy here, aside from the fact that we know Robin Williams wants to win his family back. But at the end of the day, he shouldn't be the one that has control over all those things.
1: Yeah, I I think the problem is that they make Pierce Brosnan f- look like the handsome, intimidating predator that's swooping in on a, you know, recent divorcee. But they give him this, you know, the lines of a caring boyfriend who genuinely wants the best for Sally Field and her family. And so once again, this movie just struggles from a sense of direction of like, where are we going with Pierce Brosnan's character? And, and by the end of the film, you're right. He probably runs off screaming because I would be terrified of that situation too, especially if I saw Sally Field not throw Daniel out of their lives. You know, like you said, you got this guy dressed in drag stalking their family. Like, I, it just doesn't seem quite right to me. And and once again, I think this is where Sally Field's character struggles she she doesn't have any backbone when it comes to Daniel you know dressing in drag and stalking their family and yet they portray her as this woman that the reason they got divorced is because she's this strong career woman so I I, I think that the movie is just uh, this is a this is a bad pun I, I think the movie is just a little bit confused about who it wants to be
0: yeah and another area that you see this is with Chris Columbus choosing to be so on the nose about some of the jokes about being in drag. Like we understand what he's trying to do. And then they start playing Aerosmith's dude looks like a lady. And then later in the movie, they start playing walk like a man, talk like a man. And I'm like, my gosh, dude, like we understand what you're trying to do. You don't always have to be so on the nose about it. And that's why I feel like in the hands of a more capable director, This movie could really hit those emotional notes that it does manage to hit, but that it would feel like it flows more naturally.
1: Yeah. And it's one of those things where I don't even mind that they're on the nose for a little bit. Like when he plays dude looks like a lady, I'm like, okay, yeah, that's, that's funny. Like I I get it. But then when you play walks like a man later, it's just, it's overkill. It's, it's kind of hitting the same dead horse over and over. Like (laughs) Robin Williams is dressing like a 62 year old woman. It's funny. Laugh at it, and you're kind of like, no, I'm not. I'm not laughing at the fact that he's dressing in drag. I'm I'm laughing at Robin Williams because he's hilarious.
0: And, and I think that's the thing that I'm realizing more and more about this movie. Chris Columbus, in multiple interviews, has said that what they would do is they would get one or two takes of Robin Williams reading his, you know, doing the scene as it was written, and then they would kind of just let him riff in all the following sequences and that they're supposedly like you know they said like an x-rated version of this movie because of all of his his outtakes that he had but what i'm realizing is that everything i love about this movie is actually robin williams just infusing this character with so much life and vitality the sequence in his apartment where he has to play both Daniel and Mrs. Doubtfire for the lady that's doing the inspection. It's that classic scene where he sticks his face in the meringue, but it's played so well as a piece of physical comedy. It's it's almost like Jack Lemony, you know, in um The Apartment, which is a movie we're going to get to at some point. But I feel like Robin Williams is the sole reason this movie works and that there are just a lot of flaws that he is having to make up for.
1: Well, and and even that's an example of I, I just think Chris Columbus uses the same tricks too many times because later in the movie, they're at the restaurant and oh, what has to happen again? Daniel has to be both Daniel and Mrs. Doubtfire and go back and forth between the two. And it just kind of gets old. Yeah. And that sequence
0: in the restaurant, Brad, like. That thing dragged. I, I honestly felt like that restaurant sequence was probably eight to ten minutes too long.
1: It took so long to get through that scene. You know, he he's going back and forth and he's talking to his possible new boss, you know, about this new show that he's going to do. And he's putting pepper on Pierce Brosnan's food and he's drunk drinking scotch. And it, it just it just drags. And you're right. That scene goes on for way too long.
0: There's one thing that I do want to touch on, Brad, which is an opportunity that I really found in this movie that I think was a missed opportunity. There's this scene early on when Mrs. Doubtfire has first started nannying, and the oldest daughter runs out in the street afterwards, uh, after she's kind of lit into Mrs. Doubtfire a little bit, to apologize. And Daniel, as Mrs. Doubtfire, starts asking this oldest daughter questions about, you know, what was your dad like, and, and it must be really hard going through this, and... It seems like they're really going to lean into Daniel learning things about his own shortcomings through the eyes of Mrs. Doubtfire, which I really think would be a great addition to this movie. But it's almost like they're setting you up for him to kind of learn things about himself. And then they drop that subplot altogether. And we've already talked about how by the end of the movie. It's not him that needs to learn his lesson. It's Sally Field that needs to learn her lesson. And I think that this movie, if they had kind of leaned into the flaws and the shortcomings of that character of Daniel a little bit more, we would have gotten a more well-rounded movie than what we ultimately
1: got. But in the end, we have the movie that we have. We've kind of discussed it. We've gone through it. And I'm really curious to hear, Bob, what is your final score for this movie? And would you recommend it? You know, what's really funny is I felt like we have complained
0: about this movie the entire time we've been on this episode today, Brad. But I like this movie. It really means a lot to me. You know, I saw it at a young age and it taught me a lot about adult relationships and marriage. And, you know, sometimes divorce is a gray area where it's not always a bad thing necessarily for all involved. And is it a flawed movie? Absolutely. But I think Robin Williams, being as earnest and sincere as he is, really saves this movie I'm going to go ahead and give this movie a seven out of 10. I think his performance is fantastic. I would recommend the movie. I think it's absolutely worth seeing. But as we've talked about, it just has a lot of shortcomings that it can't get past.
1: Yeah, I, I honestly feel like if this movie had delved more deeply into it being a comedy or more deeply into it being a drama, I would probably give it a nine to a nine and a half out of 10 because it really does excel at both of those things. But when you put them right next to each other throughout the film, like you said, you you put it perfectly, Bob. The sum is equal to less than its parts. And I'm going to give it a seven and a half out of 10. I, I really like this movie. You know, this was my first time watching it all the way through and not just seeing clips here or there. You know, I think there's a lot of really great things about this film. We didn't comment on it, but I actually really, really love the child actors in this movie. I love the oldest daughter. I think she shows a lot of depth and quality of character. I mean, the the way that she interacts with her dad throughout the film, with Mrs. Doubtfire, I, I think she's very tender and caring. You know, the the youngest daughter who goes on to play Matilda at some point and other kind of famous child actor roles, she is so sweet and her voice is just so endearing and I I think she delivers her lines well. So, you know, there's a lot to like about this movie, even beyond Robin Williams doing his thing. But they just tried to do too much and the film struggled because of it. I'm clearly going to recommend the movie. I genuinely think it's a really great film. And I think it is, in a certain way, I would still call it a classic. But it's okay if our classics have some flaws in them. But we want to hear what you think. I mean, this is a
0: really beloved movie, and I think a lot of people might give us some pushback on our scores here, Brad. So if that's you, if you want to call in, if you want to write in and tell us how the movie Mrs. Doubtfire has impacted you, you can do so by getting on social media, and you can find us on
1: Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at filmwhiskey. Or you can give us a phone call. Our phone number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that number is 216-800-5923. If you have different thoughts about Mrs. Doubtfire than we do, please let your voice be heard on air. Leave us a voicemail and we will play it for you here on Film & Whiskey. Next week, we'll be back talking about the
0: 1992 animated classic, Aladdin. For the Film & Whiskey podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G and we'll see you next time.